The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Osterwalder, one of the world's leading innovation experts, author, and entrepreneur. Many of you be familiar with a lot of Alex's books and tools, such as the Business Model Canvas, the Value Proposition Canvas, and most recently, his business portfolio map. I was delighted to have Alex on the show, where we dived into some of the aspects that help create invincible companies by designing organizational systems, incentives, and structures that help business innovation and entrepreneurship flourish. We dived into portfolio management, product leadership, and questions that Alex and I like to ask to unearth innovation blockers with business leaders and identify what they have to unlearn to adapt to be successful in the future. But before we get started, it's always good to go back to the past and how Alex got started in this world. If I look back on the career choices I've made, they were often made for me because I failed at something. (laughs) So In many cases, the failures turned out to be an opening, a new door towards something completely new. And I can give a couple of examples of that, right? The the first one was, to go very far back, you know, when I was a student, I wasn't a very good student. I still had this dream of becoming a professional beach volleyball player. So I was often on the beach volleyball court instead of classroom, which led to the fact that I didn't really succeed very well with my first exams at university, tasting liberty and being on the beach court. And so I was forced to choose a different direction in my studies. And I studied political science, which turned out to be the best thing that could happen to me because I really started to learn how to ask certain questions. Why are institutions the way they are? Why is society the way it is? So you ask really fundamental questions And then I went back to business school after political science and I I did a a master's and a PhD in business. So I think sometimes we overstate failure and we don't see the opportunity that will come out of it. I got the best education because of a failure. That was one failure. The other one was maybe one of my job interviews. So I like telling this story. I had a job interview with McKinsey. And I was not ready, right? It's like the mistake was with me, definitely not with McKinsey. I was just steamrolled. <laughs> and guess what happened? I did another job interview and that was with uh, Yves Pinier, now my you know, longtime author, friend, mentor, for a PhD position. Turned out to be the best thing, right? I wouldn't be doing business models today, probably if I had gotten the job as a consultant, right? So these failures open up other doors. And I think the most important lesson for me was always Am I following the thing, the passions I'm really interested in? And then eventually you'll get into the right direction. You, know? and you just have to be ready to embrace the surprises that life gives you and learn from every failure. You know, I learned things from, from everything I, I've done that didn't go the way I, I wanted to. So I'm very, very positive about failure these days simply because as long as it's not stupid failure, and if it's stupid failure, you can ask yourself, okay, why was I stupid? So these are great things. For me, failure has generally turned out to be a phenomenal thing. So I think this is a great idea for people to sort of get their head around, right? And failure is tough, though. 
So how do you sort of work your way through the ashes of when things haven't worked out as you expected, right? And how do you sort of sift through and see, well, that's a nugget that I can pull out of this or what helps me sort of take the next step? What have been some of the things for you in that space? Excellent question, because, you know, now I can look back on it in a relaxed way, but nobody wants failure and failure is always annoying and we all always overstate. Actually, we overstate failure and we overstate success often in the moment. So when I went through those things, for me, they were dramatic. I mean, I, I was always, you know, grounded enough to not say, oh, this is a life altering experience, it's a terrible failure, but it hurts. And you think that, gee, why, why did I do that? Why did this happen? I think that the biggest thing is always don't blame others for failure. Figure out, okay, even if there is somebody else did it to you, well, okay, well, that's context. That just happened. You just own it and then do with it whatever you can. So now that I look back on those things, you know, you need to actually realize, hey, now that you're a little bit older, you have a couple of failures under your belt. What were the positive things? So in the moment, failure is, as you said, nobody likes it. It's annoying, right? Yeah, but hurts, once yeah. you start to get through them, you start to see, look, at the end of the day, it wasn't so bad. This is what the positive. So if you focus on the positive, all of a sudden, you know how to instrumentalize failure. So you know exactly how do I deal with it. So some of the big things is make sure you distinguish between reversible and non-reversible decisions. So when it's a non-reversible decision, you can spend a little bit more time because, you know, there's a sunk cost, right? You might be investing a year of your time or you might be investing a lot of money to buy something, you know, found a company or whatever. When it's reversible, you go really fast because it doesn't matter. Your thinking doesn't matter. It's what you learn from it. So you just start to deal with failure in a different way. Again, failure is never the goal. It's always annoying. But you start to be able to make small bets and calculated bets. And what's interesting, actually, what entrepreneurship research shows is that contrary to common belief, entrepreneurs are risk averse. Okay, why is that? Because they make calculated bets. They're not like gamblers that make crazy bets. So it turns out entrepreneurs make very calculated bets. And now we call it lean startup, right? And customer development, what Steve Blank kind of launched and made very popular around the world. Entrepreneurs have this habit of testing, learning, testing, learning, experimenting, learning. Same for innovators. So it turns out you know, that that's the way you embrace failure. But again, that failure is never the goal, but it's an inevitable consequence. So as long as you instrumentalize it and you know how to use failure, it's actually a good thing. That's using failure and it's avoiding stupid failure. And in some areas, you're managing a nuclear plant Failure is maybe not so good of an idea. So you need to know where experimentation is appropriate and where it isn't. Again, sunk costs, big risks, small risks. So you start with age, I think. You know, that's the benefit of our old age. You start to look at these things in a slightly more structured way and less emotional way because you start to learn, you know, let me not be emotional. Let me try to kind of disconnect. from And that's something I really had to unlearn. I used to get very emotional about these things, take them personally and I rarely blamed others. I think that's a strength I always had, but I wouldn't be able to deal as well with it as I am now. So looking back, I think I did try to always make the best out of it. Now I know how to instrumentalize these kind of experiments and failure. Yeah, like this resonates massively. You know, like one of the things I talk a lot about with unlearning, one of the real characteristics people have to cultivate is they've got to own the results. 
And sometimes owning the result is uncomfortable and tough, right? Like if I don't lose those five pounds, is it the chocolate bar's fault or is it mine? The easy thing to do is obviously to externalize and blame others, blame the situation, blame the timing. But I think what I see with great entrepreneurs is they own the results, right? They see that that's part of the process, that that's the information they've got from the step that they've taken. And it might be tough. It might be hard to take. That's sort of part of the journey as you take the next step, you know? And I think as you're describing here, as you're like building the system then around the way you take these steps, like thinking big, starting small, taking small steps that are safe to fail, allow you to learn quickly, limit the blast radius if you're taking these big bets. I think it's a really important system, yeah. right? So and the, the thing I'd add to that, Besides Yves Pignard, who was my longtime co-author and is a mentor, Steve Blank has become a good friend and mentor as well. And the one thing I really like this quote, he says, you know how you call a failed entrepreneur in Silicon Valley? And again, there are a lot of things that you know, we might want to point out not going so well in Silicon Valley, but what we call a failed entrepreneur is experienced. And that is something we underestimate much too much in the sense that we put these young entrepreneurs on the cover of a magazine, and then the press makes us believe, oh, you know, that's what we need to live up to. But it's not true. Again, research shows, another thing where research is pretty interesting to look at, the age where you have the most successful entrepreneurs is 40 and over. It's not the, the young person we put on the cover of a magazine. That's atypical. That's, you know, one in a million. And yes, it happens, but it's very rare. Steve Blank tells his personal story when he, he was on the cover of a magazine while he already knew that his company was going bankrupt, right? And he was burning the money of the venture capitalists who invested in him. But here's the interesting part of the story. The same venture capitalists invested in Steve Blank and his next idea because they know if it's not stupid failure, it's not the person's fault, right? It might be too early. Technology not ripe. The infrastructure so what you do actually learn and accumulate over time is in innovation projects and entrepreneurial projects, you get better at it, right? And we tend to forget that it's very rare that first-time entrepreneurs succeed. And often the founders, first-time founders, have actually lived in three, four, five startups and they've seen what not to do. So it's like the medical profession. We have to learn the technical stuff, anatomy and physiology. For me, I call that business models and value propositions, the business yeah. physiology. So in that we can learn, we can learn the process. But like a doctor, you know, you're not going to become a doctor or surgeon reading the books. So you also need to practice. So it's not either or. Sometimes people say, yeah, it's just practice. You don't need to go study, just do the thing. No, it's as if you tell a doctor, you just, if you snip it around on people for long enough, you'll become a world-class surgeon. It's not the case. Or, you know, you say, oh, you can learn this stuff just by reading books. No, you can't. It's this mix. It's physiology, anatomy, and the practice. And the same in business and entrepreneurship. I think the big difference is we know how to do the managerial part because there's a long history around that, executing and managing. The innovation and entrepreneurial profession is much younger. So we're only starting to become a bit more systematic. Steve Blank has contributed to that. Eric Reese, we have. So this is becoming a profession where we're also going beyond the principles towards real physiology, anatomy in business entrepreneurship. It's great to hear you share that. Some modern Silicon Valley is always painted as I'm a 20-something. I got up one morning, went for a run, tripped on a stone and started Instagram or 
And, you know, I get up at 5 a.m. every morning and do five press ups. And that's how I decide where I'm going to invest all my money. Right. It's these narratives are simplified. And as you said, overcompensate the message of success. And Eric was on the show here as well. And he resonates so much with what you're saying. Right. He feels like it was 10 years to become an overnight success. Many rooms giving talks to two people explaining like what this idea was. And as you say, part of the process of formulating these ideas that many people now, like as well with your tools that have been phenomenal help to the industry, I'm sure your first iteration of the canvases looks nothing like what it did today, right? And what's your process as you're even formulating these models that will help people understand these complex things? But very simply is how you're presenting them to people to get started. So what are some of the fun anecdotes as you've worked your way through, like figuring out how to share these complex ideas in simple ways with people that they can start? Yeah, we're, we're now at our fourth book with uh, The Invincible Company. And the question you always have to ask is, does the world need another business book? And the answer should generally be no way. No, <laughs> there's enough out there. Of course. But so the way we, we actually arrogantly still answer, yeah, yeah, the world needs another business book. It's very simple. We actually, you take the first book, we wrote Business Model Generation with the Business Model Canvas inside, was very successful. But here's where you need to stay grounded. We sold a lot of books, but did we transform a lot of companies? Yes, people use the tool. So that's a success and that's very satisfying. But did we see a lot of multinationals really become innovation engines? No. So why is that? Well, the easiest answer would be to blame them and say they're stupid, but no, they're not. So look at ourselves and say, okay, what are we still missing? What are the pieces we still missing? So we only write another book when we believe we can contribute to helping business professionals get to that next level. And often, you know, people say, yeah, but Alex, your books is just, it's not new. And so, and you just repackage it. Well, I look at it from the point of view of adoption. So it's not about the newness of idea. It's about people adopting it and bring it into their lives and changing the way they work. So we, we try to add things to those ideas that are already there that are great. So I love building on top of the business literature, but then always asking the question, okay, why are companies not doing it? When people say, yeah, yeah, but that's not new. Then I ask, well, it's not new, but so tell me why companies are not doing it. So we always try to figure out what is it that companies are missing or entrepreneurs, or we, I work a lot with very large companies. And that was the kind of why we wrote this last book, The Invincible Company, because we've seen that established companies, small and big, have a hard time reinventing themselves. Apparently, something's missing. People have been writing about the ambidextrous organization, what we need to do, but nobody's really showed them well enough how to do it. So we said, okay, we're going to write a book and we're going to try to show how to do it. Book is just out. <laughs> People like it. Are they, that's great. That's a start. But we're only satisfied when people don't just like it, but they actually change their behavior, right? They unlearn certain practices from the past. So we always need to kind of unlearn, oh, we were successful. Great. But we still didn't achieve what we wanted to achieve. So the, the trick is never to get arrogant, never to say, yeah, we had success. Of course we had success, but we didn't really get where we wanted to. And once you are successful, well, Guess what? That's already the roots of future failure because you start to get arrogant, you laid back and you don't see what's coming in terms of disruption. So I think the unlearning topic is incredibly important because you stay humble and you try to add what's still missing. You try to reinvent yourself. And that's kind of the message of the Invincible Company as well. 
No company's invincible, arrogant title, right? But no company's invincible, but companies that constantly reinvent themselves because they don't believe they're invincible, those are the ones who are going to stay ahead. Small anecdote, I remember going to Southeast Asia, one of the big companies of the region, and they were proudly telling me, hey, look, this is our headquarters. We call it 100 years because we were 100 years old. Because that's wonderful. And that's amazing. 100 years. That's a great track record. Do you know how they call the headquarters at Amazon? Day one. <laughs> so you can focus on what you've achieved, which again, it's not about dissing companies that have been around for 100 and 150 years. That's hard. But nowadays, if you don't keep that mindset, that fresh mindset of reinventing yourself, always the explorer culture, you're actually going to end up with 100 years history, but you're gone, right? So, so I think that ability to remain humble and never get arrogant is something that's starting to get into companies, you know, and we're seeing some examples of companies to a certain extent, sorry to use the usual suspect, Amazon is only so successful because Jeff Bezos is obsessed by the company dying. So he says, it's normal, it's natural, Amazon's going to die. And that's exactly why they're able to reinvent themselves. An unknown example is Ping An in China, finance, uh, banking and and insurance conglomerate said, the founder Peter Ma said, we're going to get killed by the tech industry. Insurance and banking is not going to survive. And we know that hasn't happened so far. But this company said, we need to act. He created a whole division to reinvent the company to become a technology player playing in arenas, hired a co-CEO, Jessica Tan, who had that only task to build a reinvention engine, right? So we need to do something and unlearn the past organizational structures. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to reinvent ourselves. So you need to unlearn pure management focus, pure execution focus to learn how we can at the same time reinvent our companies, right? And that does mean unlearning quite a bit. There's loads of points that resonate here. I think the first one that stands out is you're still owning the results here, even of your own past work, right? Like recognizing that you've had great success, but there's more to be done here. That's humble and that's actionable, right? It's driving you to keep creating and fill in those gaps. I think that's a really important message for people. In the company context, the thing that just really jumps out at me, and this is what I see a lot, obviously, I coach lots of execs in the Fortune 500 companies, and you go into them and you sit there and say these ideas like, your company is under threat. How are you responding to the future? They're sitting there and all their feedback mechanisms are telling them they're doing the right things. Like, why do we need to unlearn? Our share price is going up. I've been promoted all these different levels into the company. I'm I'm running bigger teams. I'm in bigger organizations. So all their feedback is telling them they're doing the right things. You know? And then the contrary point is then explaining why do you need to learn how to do things differently? Why do you need to build this muscle to continuously adapt to changing circumstances rather than just focus and optimize what you're great at today? And that's a contrary message in the context where all their feedback mechanisms are share price up being promoted, bigger company, more magazine covers, you know, whatever their success metric might be. And it's funny you mentioned this because I find the best leaders are the ones who recognize that, right? Who are comfortable with being uncomfortable. They are actively creating scenarios where they get outside their comfort zone to grow. One of my favorite examples was the head of global markets for HSBC. 
what he would do is he would go down and sit with the graduates every year and he would give them problems to work on that he was working on or problems he didn't know answers to just to see the way they would solve it. And they'd like pull out new technologies. And so he'd be sitting there and you can imagine in these big companies, right? The most senior person sitting with some of the most junior people learning and unlearning from them. And that's such a powerful cultural artifact. Absolutely. Company as well. These notions are really important. And I think they exemplify that leadership that's going to make these companies become invincible to your point. To build on that, I think, you know, the, the point you really nailed is all the indicators are pointing in the right direction. I mean, think of Nokia at its peak, right? It was selling so many phones. The CEO was on, on the cover of magazines and then <laughs> they didn't realize what happened to them with the launch of the, the iPhone. So here's an exercise I do to help leadership teams actually realize where they are today. Because I sincerely believe you can't convince anybody of anything. All you can do is help them change their frame of mind so they, they realize it themselves. I don't try to convince people anymore. <laughs> I'm too old for that. So here's what I do. is a simple exercise. First, I explain there are three types of innovation. I take this from, you know, adapted from Clay Christensen. There's efficiency innovation, which is about improving your existing business models and processes. There's sustaining innovation, which is replacing old products with new ones, similar business model. And then there's transformative innovation, which is really about creating new growth engines. So I ask executives, I have one case in mind with a board of a really big Asian company, and I got them to write down their five favorite innovations at the company over the last three years, write it on a sticky note, okay? There were about 20 people in the room. So they all wrote down their sticky notes. Then I asked them, okay, now let's put them on the window in these three buckets. Which one is an efficiency innovation? Which one is a sustaining innovation? Which one is a transformative innovation? So they put up their things and obviously... Every, you know, a lot on efficiency innovation, some in sustaining, and then two or three in transformative. So then I ask, okay, talk to me about these transformative ones. Is that like Amazon Web Services where you create an entire new growth engine that is really bringing the company into new arenas with huge profitability? And they say, well, it's kind of an idea. So okay, well, then let's take it down because it's not yet a transformative innovation. It's an idea. So we take it down. So we end up with 95% of the sticky notes in efficiency innovation, 5% in sustaining innovation, and 0% in transformative innovation. And then I ask them the question, I say, okay, look, you have a lot of innovations going on. I'm not trying to tell you efficiency innovation is bad, but if your industry is transforming or your business model is slowly dying, you're actually just helping yourself die more efficiently with efficiency innovation, right? So I don't tell them you have to do transformative innovation, but now it's an explicit choice. Are you aware that you're winning innovation awards because you're using complicated technology, but you're actually not creating the future? It's not because you use blockchain that you're inventing the future. No, you're maybe just bringing a dying business model into the 21st century. It's going to die anyways. So I use these little mechanisms to help them unlearn to say, oh, actually, we're not very good at innovation. We're winning all these prizes, but we're not inventing the future. And it just needs to be a deliberate choice, right? You can't say, no, we're just going to do efficiency innovation because this is what the right thing to do now. But I think most leadership teams are not aware today that the types of innovation they're doing, they're performing, is not bringing their company into the 21st century. So rather than telling them you're wrong, I let them visualize their current state 
see it because it's literally a visual. It hits them visually, right? I remember doing this with the bank in the Middle East. It hits them visually and they say, oh my goodness, we didn't realize that our entire effort is on improving what we have. And you know what? Our industry transforming. We're just going to more efficiently die. So it's an interesting conversation. But the, the key message here is don't try to convince people what they should do. Visualize where they are and then ask a couple of questions to help them realize, oh, maybe we should do things differently. And that has been a really good recipe for me. That's how I convince CEOs. That's how I convince boards. Because if I tell them this is what you need to do, they're not going to believe me. They're going to say, hey, I'm managing a multi-billion dollar company. What do you know? And they're right, right? I see things. All I can do is help them <laughs> visualize and understand. So rather than convincing them, I help them kind of frame it in a different way so the light bulb goes on in their heads. I think this is a great exercise. And I think one, I'd encourage every, all the listeners to even just try in their own companies is actually like start mapping the work you're doing. And I think that phenomenon is something definitely I've observed too. It's 90x percent on sustaining innovations. And I often feel like that that gets such weighting because it's known, it's comfortable, it's easy to just like innovate something that's working rather than sort of get uncomfortable, get outside your comfort zone and explore this unknown space, right? The transformative growth, which means that you're probably going to have to embrace failure as part of that process. You're, you're going to have to make mistakes along the way. And I think it ties nicely back to the point you said at the start of the show about the methods that you use for sustaining innovations are very different from the methods that you use for transformative innovation. And yet, most leaders in large companies, their comfort zone is to sustaining, put another million and get two million out of the machine because we know it's got a growth rate of 5% in the new market, right? It's all, it's what they know. It's not getting outside their comfort zone and these exploratory sort of smaller steps, you know, investing in, in to get information to make your next investment. So what are some of your sort of, you know, learnings as, as you've helped organizations like extend their portfolio, right? Really start to look at exploring new initiatives while they exploit the existing pieces of work. What are yeah, some of the yeah. things you've started to help companies? One, the first step, I love this, visualize it, recognize the pattern, then the penny drops. So how do you help these them start to take these uncomfortable steps and get more into the exploratory space? So the first thing I really show is that companies have a structural challenge. It's not an innovation talent challenge. It's not an idea challenge. It's a structural challenge. They have the people, they have the ideas. It's never the people or the ideas in a company that has more than 100 people. You have the ideas, you have the, the people, right? So here's the thing. In the invincible company or companies that are able to reinvent themselves, you have two areas. You have managing the existing and inventing the future. Now, the metrics of companies today is all geared towards managing the existing, right? So we make plans, we have performance metrics, we need to turn on investment plans. Yeah, exactly. Business plans. So obviously, people are not going to take a risk. If you're evaluated on your performance, you need to make a plan, you need to deliver the plan you submitted, guess what? You'd be silly to take any risk, right? You're jeopardizing your career. Now, innovators are a little bit crazy and they don't care about jeopardizing their career, but that's, they need to break the rules. 
So then companies start giving out prizes to employees who break the rules. Really? Why don't you change the rules rather than reward people for breaking the rules? That makes no sense. I love so, that. That's so good. That's so funny. I said. So I stole that. I stole that, that line from uh, my colleague, Tim Daiviki, right? So we, oh, nice. Yeah. Why do we break the rules? So here's the thing. We need to create a safe space for exploration where you are actually rewarded, literally rewarded to fail, but not in the sense that that's the goal, but you can fail and there are no consequences. So it doesn't jeopardize your career. You could almost say that's the whole psychological safety aspect that Amy Edmondson brings in. So here's what you need to do. As a leader, you don't pick the winning ideas. You create the conditions for the winning ideas and the winning teams to emerge. Because nobody actually knows at the beginning, and this is what Rita McGrath says really nicely, stupid ideas and good ideas, they look virtually the same at the beginning. You don't know. So what you need to create is an ecosystem where teams can explore ideas. Many will fail. Only few will succeed. And that's okay. But you need to create a system where you can safely fail because you're experimenting. And the ratio... If you want a really big success, the ratio is very clear from early stage venture capital. One out of 250 projects or four out of a thousand early stage venture investments succeed. Okay, four out of a thousand. Think of it. That means we would need to create a space where many teams can experiment. They will get small investments. That's the key term here. So there will be small and cheap failures. Those that get traction. Oh yeah, customers actually seem to be interested. You double down and you only invest in the teams that are advancing with evidence. So it's not that you reward failure, you just reward those experiments that are working and you don't fund the experiments that are not working, but it's the same as creating a culture where you can fail. So guess why Jeb Bezos says Amazon is the best place in the world to fail? Because he wants to attract the innovators. He knows exactly that the innovators know how this works, They know it's not about the idea. It's about adapting the idea until you find a value proposition and a business model. The idea is free. It's everywhere. Ideas are easy. What's hard is to adapt an idea until it creates value for customers and value for your business. And for that, you need to create an ecosystem as a leader. It's not that execution and innovation, one is better than the other. You need both. Those are two separate goals with separate rules, separate culture, even separate skills. And they need to live in harmony, right? So the last thing maybe is, you know, innovators like to call themselves pirates or rebels. Don't do that because we killed pirates and rebels historically. <laughs> so you want to brand yourself as, hey, I'm here, I'm a rebel, come and kill me. No, we need to create harmony. And that's why Tendai Viki, my colleague, talked about pirates in the Navy. You want to be a pirates in the way you kind of explore, and, but you want to be legitimized. So, and that's something we need to create in companies today, a safe space for innovators, but also partnership with the executors, because these are not two worlds that should be separate. They should be separated, but they shouldn't be separate. They should work together in harmony to enable each other. The executors finance the innovators the innovators create the futures for the executors. So they need to live in harmony. They both need each other. I know. I think this is great. And I love the 10 days sort of quotes. We have them on the show as well. It's another great show to sort of for listeners to dive into as well. These ideas are so important, right? Like creating the system to allow great ideas emerge. And yet 
so many organizational systems are designed to kill all innovation and point fingers at people or rely on people being so you know, against the grain to battle their way to get ideas to come to life, right? There's a one-size-fits-all approach across portfolios about you have an idea, right? Where's your 500-page business case, right? You know, now you've been funded. Okay, what day is my software going to be built on? When's it going to be released? What are all the features in it? Like, and yet this is still the major paradigm for most organizations. And in many ways, it's sort of lazy, right? It's easy to have a one-size-fits-all approach across your organization. It's easy to stick with like lagging indicators of revenue or customer satisfaction as success criteria for sustained innovations. Getting people started with these sort of uh, new behaviors. It's really interesting as well, this example you're sharing with getting leaders to map their portfolio of work. I think that's such a great technique, you know, and starting to then layer these questions on top of these visualizations you make is like, how are we measuring success in these different domains? Should they be the same? What's different? What kind of success measures should we look at for exploratory new initiatives? One of my favorite pieces of research is by uh, Douglas Hubbard. He wrote How to Measure Anything. And he went through a couple of hundred business cases to look at the different variables that had an impact on the success of the project. Now, typically, when I ask people, what are the metrics that are most important in your business case? Eventually, the company says, well, is it on time, on budget, on scope? And what he discovered is that those variables have no information value whatsoever in a business case. The two most important things were, will anybody use it? And will the project get cancelled? I think these sort of notions about what entrepreneurs naturally optimize for is how quickly can we get these ideas in front of people to see, should we build it? And then test, can the executors? Can we build it as the sort of paired metric, as you described, about creating and finding that people want this thing? And then can we actually deliver it? Huge you know, idea. I, yeah. Yeah. Huge and idea. Absolutely, right? And yet, as you say, all our organizational systems in the realm of exploratory innovation don't even look at those sort of variables. They don't set up the organizational systems to optimize for them. They're, but I think it's stuck. changing. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm starting to be op- optimistic. So I, st- I still ask this question to illustrate your point. Right? You know, I, I often ask room full of people, you know, 100 people, 3,000 people, 7,000 people. I always ask this question, how many of you in this room are working on an idea that nobody wants? And there are always some hands that go up, right? Some honest people. And then, you yeah, know, yeah. the question is, are they stupid? So why would anybody be working on something nobody wants? Because the processes are geared to what you exactly said, on time, on budget delivery of stupid idea. So the processes force them to execute something where they already know nobody's interested, right? So we have to kind of turn that and say, no, no, no. In exploration, the goal is very different. It's not to be on time and on budget. The goal is to reduce risk and uncertainty and to kill the ideas where we start to learn we shouldn't do them. and that's where I'm, I'm starting to be optimistic. So I'll give you a, a two cases. I'll give you the numbers to one. So Bosch and Bayer, two German companies, are starting to put in place a real portfolio management system. So over the, you know, three years, Bosch, big company, 400,000 people, known for car parts, et cetera, many more things, a German engineering company, they invested in 200 projects okay, over three years. But they didn't give them a big chunk of money. They gave them 100,000 euros. 
and they gave them 130,000 euros in three months. After the three months, they look at the evidence that the teams bring back. And guess how many projects they kill? 70% of the projects. So they only give 30% follow-up investment. So the ability is reduce risk and uncertainty. Okay, we now know which ideas have some traction. So we give them follow-up investment. So they get 300,000 euros and they get a little bit more time. After that period, again, only 25% get follow-up investment. So technically, 75% get killed of the projects. They just don't get follow-up investment. So of the 200 over three years, 15, one five made it into the exploit portfolio. And here's the big idea. They don't call the teams that didn't get anywhere, they don't call them losers because that's how the project works. The teams who tried actually, they can come back with a new idea. And guess what? They'll actually be better at it because they already tried once or twice. So they learned, okay, how do you test this? Entrepreneurship and innovation is a profession. You get better at it over time. And that means third, fourth time entrepreneurs and innovators. It's not that they will, because they've done it a lot, get more success, but they'll get more efficient at it. They will know faster, are we on the right track or do we stop? And it's okay to stop. That's what is a, a mature, mature entrepreneur or innovators knows when you should stop and kill a project. You don't even try to pivot yourself to success. No, you say, there's nothing here. We're going to leave the capital in our organization to another team who's on the right track because you want to have a return on portfolio and you identify yourself with the overall team, not just your little team. And that's the difference between entrepreneurship and corporate entrepreneurship is as an entrepreneur and your founding team, you're an entity of one. The portfolio is the venture capital. And here's the luxury. I think that established companies have small or big. You are working as a team. You have five, 10 teams in parallel. And it's not about your success. It's about one success out of 10. So you're working together. So if you're not going to get follow-up investment, you still contributed to the winner. So you see the difference? And that's where I think there's a huge opportunity for paid entrepreneurs. An entrepreneur on the payroll, which almost sounds like, how is that possible? But because we're looking at return on portfolio, not return on project, in execution, you look on return on project because it's on time, on budget to execute the plan. In innovation, it's return on portfolio where you need to have some ideas that are going to come out of the bigger portfolio. And they pay the whole return. Just like in venture capital, one big success is going to pay for hundreds of losers. Losers in quotes, right? Because we don't want to call them losers because it's part of the process. That's exactly what Jeb Bezos publicly talks about. He says, literally, to his shareholders, one success will pay for thousands of failures. So you always need to take those bets because you can only identify the winner if you invest in those thousand projects, right? And the goal is not millions of dollars in each one, small bets in order for the big ones to emerge. There's some great ideas here, I think, for people to take away. The one that jumps out for me is that success is defined at the organizational level. Where the company's success is everyone's success and you contribute to that. You know, I think so many people are trapped in localized successes. You know, how am I measured from my contribution to the innovation rather than looking at the company's growth rather than individual? Super powerful idea. What you're also describing here is a company who has set up systems 
that encourage everyone to work in this way, to make these small bets and learning through both the successes and failures is the process. That's what we expect. The expectations are set that whatever it is, four in a thousand will be successful, right? That's, that's our expectation. So let's go find those four as quickly and cheaply as possible. And when people are in that system, then they can excel, right? They're not localizing to make themselves look good. They're localizing or aiming for something bigger, right? What's the success for the company? Part of my journey as an entrepreneur is to learn the ropes, to learn these skills, to build these muscles. So maybe this idea isn't the idea that becomes that one four in a thousand, but I'm contributing to help us find that. So if I think this is a bad idea, let's kill it and let's move on to the next best idea. And I think these are so powerful techniques. And you mentioned Bezos a lot. And I think obviously his background as an investment banker, that's how you run your portfolios, right? You make bets understanding that one or two of your accounts or your bets are going to pay for the whole portfolio. And that's optionality, right? And I think helping people understand that it's a real deliberate mechanism that these companies are building in here. It's not just one leader. There's evidence in all these markets where we have to manage uncertainty, whether it's financial environments where Bezos sort of learned the ropes of finance and investment and has translated into organizational structures as well. That's part of his journey. And it's part of everyone's journey as you sort of go through these. And I think it's really important for people to recognize that and maybe look for the companies. You know, if you want to work in this way, as you say, like paid for entrepreneurism, there are companies that set up these systems. And I think a lot of the questions you've shared here today are ways people can figure that out maybe when they're looking for them or interviewing with them. How much sustaining transformation of innovation is happening? How do you measure success for your initiatives? Is it yourself or is it the portfolio? I think these are great signals that people can look out for. Or if you're a leader, start to shift your thinking to be more focused on to create these systems to be successful. I'll I'll add one really simple experiment that you can do to figure out, is this company going to innovate or not? And I baptized it the Rita McGrath test because Rita McGrath gave me this idea. So she says, if you want to understand if a company is going to innovate, look at the CEO's agenda, literally the agenda, and look how much time is carved out every week for innovation. And here's my add to it. If a CEO doesn't spend 40 to 60% of his or her time on innovation, or doesn't have a co-CEO at the same level of power, you never want to be in innovation in that company because it's just not going to happen. That's a very simple experiment that you can make. And if, it doesn't, if it's not the CEO, then take at very least the last four important meetings and look how much time was carved out for innovation. That will immediately reflect if that company is doing innovation or not. And then the other aspect I'd add is we kind of, you were really summarizing this in a beautiful way. But the one thing that we're still missing, I think, and companies haven't figured this one out, is you can't, so what you really need to be able to do is reallocate resources dynamically. Instead of firing people, you need to say, no, this is where the world is going. We're going to reallocate resources. So you're building up a wonderful team over time where the goal is not to say this business unit is we're going to kill it, we're going to sell it, we're going to do this or that. Sometimes you might have to sell, etc. I'm not saying that's not a good option. But when one part of the company is dying, you, know, you need to reallocate the resources early enough so you don't have to fire them. So my belief is 
innovation is almost a moral obligation, not to create more money, but actually to create more stable jobs. Because instead of a company going through a crisis, having to fire 100,000 people, you're reallocating the resources. You can only do that if you're dynamically killing businesses, reinventing new ones, and reallocating resources. And great companies do that. Logitech reallocated 75% of the resources from the dying computer peripherals business to the gaming industry. They didn't just fire people. They really made this shift. So we need to get a lot more dynamic and think less with rigid structures, but more fluid cell-like structures where some cells die, new cells grow, and we constantly, constantly reallocate. So agile in the very strategic sense, not just at the project level, but agile as an organization to reallocate resources. This resonates massively with me. You know, the things that I'm working on these days is like building software that you can recognize on these portfolio bets about what, like the timeliness, because things like trends, when is the right time to build the blockchain product in our market, with our context, with our people? And I firmly believe you have to be making these sort of small investments in new technologies to understand what they might mean for your business. And maybe it's not the right time to bring your blockchain product to market. But if you just sort of fire all those people, you've lost the most important part of your investment, which is the knowledge all those people have gained. And if you can keep that knowledge alive and well and see that knowledge, that information as value in your portfolio and allocate it when the time is right or when maybe it wasn't right or and move that around to different parts of your portfolio, I think that's where the value of the organization grows. You know, and I think that's a hugely important next horizon, I think, for people as we start to tackle this type of work. There's a beautiful example of that one. Just maybe one thing, you know, the Fire Phone of Amazon was a huge failure. And what's interesting is that team and the leader behind it was not fired because it was a big experiment. And here's what happened. Actually, Alexa came out of the Fire Phone. Think of it, right? So one of their big successes today came out of that. So it's exactly what you say. We need to showcase those things where failure turning up into opportunity. And sometimes failure is failure, but the people have gotten more experienced in exploration, just like a first-time entrepreneur makes really stupid mistakes. The fourth-time entrepreneur won't make those same mistakes. That's exactly what we need to value more in established companies. So we really take care of those who are experimenting, tear down the blockers that are preventing these people from innovating, and tear down the blockers, you know, the Firing those people is the worst thing you can do. Sometimes you have to separate past because it was stupid failure. Okay, that's, a, that's not tragic. That happens. But in many cases, the experimentation is an important part of the heritage. What did we learn? What is this leading to? Maybe we want to acquire a company that's doing this better because we learned this. It's incredibly important what you're saying. Nice. Final question then for you is like looking forward. What's sort of lighting you up? What are you excited about ahead? I'm actually very excited about this boost of distributed work because we've always believed in building the platform for innovation and entrepreneurship in the sense that it's about exploring ideas and tracking the data of what you're learning. And we've been doing that for a couple of years. We've made tons of mistakes in the process. But one of the things we realized, it's hard to get people to A, work like this and work like this in a software tool. So all of a sudden with COVID-19, everybody was forced to work like this. 
And the big companies we're working with are saying, oh my goodness, this is pretty amazing. We can actually do better work online distributed in this software than if we did offline workshops, right? So I'm excited about getting the whole field to the next level because the software tools are now leveraging the human creativity. We'll never replace human creativity and the vision, right, of entrepreneurship, but we can leverage that by helping with processes and software tools. And I'm excited that we're almost catapulted into this role the last couple of months. So that seeing, again, huge opportunity coming out of this very difficult time that we're all facing, there are very positive things that will come out of this. Yeah, I think it goes back to this point where you mentioned that you don't tell people what these sort of systems could be like, that everyone has this shared experience, right? Everyone's working remotely. I, I feel like we've taken a 10-year leap in remote work in 10 weeks, literally, as COVID is really being an accelerant rather than a disruption. And I'm excited to see what you're going to continue to bring to market with your team. All the books you've written have been great. And thank you for doing that. I'm sure there's probably a few more in you by the sounds of things. So we'll look forward to those in the future as well. But thanks for your time and sharing your thoughts today. Thanks for having me. And great conversation. And I love the way you summarize the things I say in a much shorter, condensed form. So <laughs> appreciate that. It's half the fun, Alex. Cheers. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.